Look, people think this kind of broadcasting light's really glamorous, don't they? <laughs> Sat in the back of a sweltering car that he's been busting. Anyway, <laughs> cool. We're back. All right. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Very happy to be back from a, a little break and very happy as well to welcome back Sports Pro Senior Contributor Matt Rogan. Hi Matt. Hi Owen, we missed you when you were on your break, although it was uh, just the seamless operation you'd expect, I'm sure, without you in the in the saddle. <laughs> Well, I'd hope so. Certainly sounded pretty good from where I was sitting. Um, but yeah, Matt, we are, we're going to be talking, uh, well, we're going to be doing something that we've done a lot of in the last couple of years, which is talk about the 100, the ECB's uh, new short format cricket tournament. But we're going to be doing something we haven't done, which is talk about the 100, having actually seen it. Uh, the finals played at Lords on Saturday, uh, Southern Brave, capitulating in one game and then holding strong in the other. Oval Invincibles winning the women's tournament uh, with a fantastic performance in that final. And then Southern Brave seeing off Birmingham Phoenix in the other one. That was all great and very exciting, but it obviously still leaves a lot to consider around the tournament, a lot to talk about. Uh, and that's what we're going to do now over the next kind of 40 minutes or so. I mean, there's been so much kind of angst and anguish and, uh, and, and, and pontification around this tournament what were your impressions of it when you actually saw it on its feet over the last four or five weeks? So I guess I, I come at this as somebody who's worked in and around cricket for the last 10 years or so, my, my time at Two Circles, but also bumped into it um, slightly by accident with two kids who started off playing tennis and football um, and both ended up as cricketers. So I, and I come at that now as a, a cricketing parent, someone who's taken both kids to watch the 100. So we went down to the GS Bowl twice um, to watch the Southern Brave, both the women and the men, of course. Um, and also involved for my sins in, um, in managing a tea, a junior team now, uh, our, our local cricket club at Aston Rowan. So slightly by accident, I've, I've sort of ended up seeing the 100 from all sorts of different perspectives. I, and in fact, writing about it in, in my book as well. So um, I guess my initial reactions... Um, probably stem right back um, as, a, as a consumer, probably stem right back to seeing my kids being slightly confused a couple of years ago by watching my kids absolutely transformed by the draft way back when. Seems like an age ago, um, pre-pandemic. And that, that whole notion of a draft is obviously something that's very alien to alien to any of us uh, in, the, in the UK sports marketplace. Um, and then sort of just a, a little smeltering of continued interest on their part in, in what the tournament was going to be, whether it was still happening, whether our tickets that we bought for last year were still going to be valid for this year. And in a way, maybe that um, other sports might not have, or other events might not have lodged in their brain. I don't find them asking me the same questions about the Council Euros football, for example. It was definitely something as cricketers themselves that lodged with them. Um, and I have to say, um, through this very intensive tournament period, going to a couple of games, sitting through several rain showers in Southampton, um, buying a few copies of the uh, the Cricket Attacks trading cards that were on sale 
watching some of the logo, some of the Lego promotions, you know, they and through them myself have been been thoroughly drawn in by the whole thing and, and ultimately very impressed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the draft because that reminds you of one of the ways in which it's been a different experience, different tournament from, from what was originally expected because you had, I can't remember the exact number, but somewhere between 30 and 40 pullouts because of COVID across the men's and women's competition and some of the the real world-class players, the Steve Smiths and Elise Perrys and Kyron Pollards of this world. Um, but the ECB have released some statistics that suggest it's been a pretty decent success on their terms uh, in the last month. 16.1 million people watching across the tournament on television. Um, I'm never quite sure what to make of those kind of slightly cumulative figures, but... Um, 57% of viewers, they say, had never had not watched any other live cricket this year. Uh, finals day peaked at 1.4 million viewers for the women's game, 2.4 million for the men across uh, across the BBC and Sky Sports. 510,000 tickets sold. 55% of those attending had not bought a ticket in this country before. And I think probably the big headline stat that has delighted most people, I think, whether they were sceptical about these... Uh, these tournaments or not is the 267,000 aggregate crowds for the women's tournament. Um, let's unpack some of that. Let's let's start with the women's tournament. Um, that seems to be the kind of unalloyed success in all of this. What worked there? What worked there? Um, I, I think the women's tournament began to work actually um, – two years ago as well during the draft. I, I think the women's tournament began to work the, the minute the women's tournament draft was with the men's tournament draft and the the mindset of the organisation from the very start was the 100 was, a, was a, a competition for women and a competition for men. And I would challenge you to, to find a single piece of marketing around the event for the last two years uh, on the grounds, activation, um, positioning, athletes put up for interview, anything that wasn't entirely balanced in the way that the proposition was run. Um, sure, the men were, were still paid more, but that, that was very symptomatic. I think that the, the prize money was, was equivalent and balanced as well. And so um, I think there's a, there's a big uh, argument to say that, well, actually, just by starting for positioning, but we're going to position this equally. We're going to give it the same focus, same attention, um, they were already onto a on, onto a good thing, um, and when pivotal things happen, like as you say, athletes um, did pull out of the competition. The women's tournament actually were extremely effective in replacing those athletes. Uh, if you look at the Indian women who who came over, some of the um, the Aussie females indeed who did come over in the end. And so, um, I, I think the positioning. Uh, from the beginning, I think the continuity of commitment to the female event. And finally, you know, the presentation on the grounds was very clear when the matches started, if you had tickets, it was very clear that, um, you know, it was, a, it was an afternoons and into the evenings worth of spectacle and worth of entertainment. Um, when the women came onto the grounds, the fireworks and the, the presentation in the stadium was identical. Uh, the live music bands were positioned in exactly the same way, and and you know it goes back as as to, to some really simple things in the marketing as well. So, for example, um, when my kids did manage to persuade me to buy them a few packets of the cricket attacks that they sort of created to put themselves on a level with with match attacks from a football perspective that Tops produced, um, 
you open the packet and, and you're as likely to pick a platinum female star as you are out as a, as a male star. And so that equal positioning, I think, has been fundamental. And it reminded me a little bit of um, when the London 2012 organisers said, no, we're not the London 2012 organisers for the Olympic Games. We're the London 2012 organisers for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And across two propositions, they were ex- completely balanced in terms of how they focused it. Obviously, now we're looking at we're looking at a gender um, balance conversation, but there was absolutely the same remorseless balance in their focus. I suppose a consequence of getting to start from scratch, you had the, the same teams who had started at the same point in their development, which was you know from completely from uh, from the ground up. So you had the same sponsors who had the same incentives to promote each each side of the coin um you you know you have in football for example some clubs do a very good job of promoting their women's teams but they ultimately started 75 years or 80 years or 90 years after the men's teams and they're in competitions that don't have the same profile yeah that's right and i also think there's a you know there's something in that positioning of um a women's game in the afternoon before a men's game into the evening you know that the I took three eleven-year-old girls to watch the Southern Brame at the GS Bowl at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and I was never going to get away with um, for, for my wife, let alone the the, the other two um, kids' parents, with bringing them home at eleven o'clock at night. So we just stayed for the women's game. So, so actually, in terms of the family positioning proposition, um, having the the sort of three thirty start for the women's game really worked. Um, and the atmosphere and the crowd and the engagement for those games in and around what was going on on the pitch was just as strong and in some ways stronger than the men's game, by which point by the men's game, maybe there are a few more groups of, let's be stereotypical about it, a few more groups of guys who come for a few beers um, who actually were less focused on the action than the family skewed crowd were during the afternoon on the women's game. I mean, the other thing that struck me watching it as it developed, you know, and I, I, I will admit to, I've watched women's games before, but it's not a world I, I know as deeply as the men's game. And actually seeing some of the stars emerge, whether they were young English stars like Izzy Wong and uh, Alice Capsey, or seeing some, you know, the the real elite superstars like Marazan Cap show you how good they are on that stage, um, was kind of the point of the competition. And if you were coming to it as a fresh viewer, uh, as a very casual or completely new fan, then it's quite an effective way of, of positioning it as well. Uh, and frankly, the the action on the pitch was was terrific, you know. And, I, and I've I've got to know my cricket over the course of the last five years, but I wouldn't say I'm by any means native. And to me, the you know the bowling actions, the pace, the variety, the quality of the batting, you know, was was an excellent spectacle. And that's. Um, the pace of growth in the female game. I have an 11 year old daughter who plays with the county stuff and the time and focus and attention going into the female game from grassroots up is a sea change in the last three years. Uh, and that's exactly why the hundred was necessary. So the ECB could continue to generate the funds to plow into the female game. And so, you know, that any perceived gap in quality between the female game and the men's game is even smaller in, in another three years time. Let's talk a bit about, the format because it's something that probably got less attention as it went on and if we if we walk it back a little bit maybe it 
reminds us of why this was such a challenge in the first place to do something like this where you're you're building something brand new because you're kind of explaining it to people when you don't quite know what it is yet. What it ended up being was basically a 20 over game with five balls aside and a couple of other initiatives to speed things up and make it easier for people in the ground, easier for TV, less of the kind of drift and stretch that you get in in a in an elite game, especially where there's so much going on tactically. I have to say, uh, some of the things that took me a while to get my head around when I was watching the, the first few games on television, like, for example, I was still found myself counting to six on the overs was, and then found it was five and then the bowler had changed and so I had to remind myself of what was going on. I, I found in terms of watching the live spectacle, all that stuff just, just flowed really well. Um, and actually, they're not that complicated things to get your head around. And the... Uh, most of the in-stadia graphics I thought were very well done in terms of, of navigating the viewer through it. I didn't find personally some of the on-screen graphics quite as easy to follow sometimes, despite knowing my cricket and knowing my data. Um, you, you know, I, I might maybe have moved a few of those things around, but I, I thought it did It did just take some of the complexity out um, for the viewer for whom that complexity is absolutely still a challenge. You know, my 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 folks um, come to watch my come to watch my kids play cricket, and and it's confusing if you're you know if you're earlier in life or later in life trying to get your head around the new sport. Anything you can do to take some of those barriers out, I explain it to my mum pretty much constantly at the side of the boundary. Is 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 really important actually, um, and so there are small challenges. It's a small changes in terms of format, but personally, I think they make quite a big difference. I do know that um, the next three days for my sins, I'm taking my son's cricket team on tour just into London. And I do know that six of those boys independently have asked me whether on one of those days we can play a hundred format against the opposition teams. And I also know that uh, as managers of those various teams, we're quite likely to do it because little things like not changing ends every six balls, but changing ends every 10 means that we can bullet through a game of the 100 in about two hours, 20 minutes, as opposed to three hours. Um, and for kids or people after work or whatever it might be, that's a pretty meaningful difference in terms of the potential for the format to roll out from the pro game. And I think there will be people who who will contest some of that and say that they would actually like to see this go back to T20 and have the alignment maybe five years down the track when it's when it's bedded in. I'm, I've got kind of mixed views on it, but the thing that definitely struck me, if you think back to the first press release, and we're getting very inside baseball here to kind of mix up our, our metaphors a little, but if you think back to that first press release, you know, and they were post-rationalizing this 100-ball tournament, but they were still thinking in terms of overs, and it got very, very weird and complex, and it felt like you're introducing things to a sport to make it attractive rather than removing barriers. And I think perhaps what they came to understand as they were putting this together and getting it on its feet was that it's actually the removal of barriers and it's the the streamlining that other sports can look at as ways of, of attracting new fans and, and being less intimidating to new fans. Yeah, perhaps. Although... You know, the the hard truth is that cricket has innovated through fairly large chunks of its history. You know, way back in the day, um, there used to be, you know, regularly you'd see games like 11 players against 22 players as a betting spectacle. 
And so, yeah, innovation and changing formats and structures and things has always been part of cricket. And it just so happens that the early part of, of this century, we had a bit of a fallow period in that regard. Uh, sorry, the last century, a bit of a fallow period. And a lot of the furore, um, actually, if you look at that came out when the 100 was launched, is, is very similar in a lot of ways to the furore when T20 was launched um, way back when in, in the UK as well. So um, the, the hard reality is that we're trying to create a format here um, that works for new audiences to get their head around a game. And personally, I think they've done exactly the right thing, which is say, let's start from the ground up, um, think about what the format will be that will work for newer audiences, make it simpler, work for TV, enable us to commit to a, a contained slot, which is important when we go onto mainstream television. Um, and sure, we're going to try and explain that to the hardcore audience uh, in the context of numbers of overs and so on. Um, but but that's a secondary priority, actually. And I know it's hard for any sport, um, those that love the sport and trail up and down the country to watch counties and so on, to hear um, a new idea rationalised slightly secondarily in the, in the context of the, the terms that they're used to. But I think it's really important to start with the new audiences you're looking to attract that's there as opposed to iteratively change the product you've already got. Um, as much as anything else going forward, the ECB needs both T20 Blast and the 100 to be differentiated, segmented, successful, um, both in terms of broadcast and in stadia properties in order that they can have a, a clear line of sight for long-term financial sustainability. So they're not looking to destroy T20, anything but. I want to get onto that place that the 100 now has in the calendar and the challenges. I, I mean, it's probably the primary challenge that a lot of people uh, foresee, not just for that competition, but for the whole health of the sport. I do want to get onto that. But just staying with that model, do you think it was easier to see in the flesh why it needed to be separate? So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about could you not have just boiled down the T20 Blast and... Uh, and, and put that on the BBC or, you know, not that it's necessarily the ECB's choice to do that, but, um, you know, that you could have done something with the existing competitions, that there were things that they could do commercially and in terms of the marketing, the positioning with eight new teams that they couldn't do with 18 existing teams, each of which have their own, you know, they're their own entities, they have their own agendas. So you mentioned the Lego uh, promotions. I think even though there was a lot of kind of, um, a lot of derision about the fact that they were crisp companies, the fact that you had one company sponsoring all the eight teams with eight different brands, that kind of thing. Do you think that some of that made more sense once it was live? Well, if we, if we start with the notion of the, you know, did it make more sense to do it from scratch rather than have a T20 Blast competition? Um, I don't believe incremental tweaks to T20 um, to maybe to try and find a mainstream broadcast audience, maybe to try and simplify the proposition in some areas, would have would have got anywhere near the financial upside that the ECB needs, um, anywhere near. Um, and that comes brings me back around to what I was saying around both need to be successful at a broader engagement and and positioning and profitability perspective. And we need to remember when I say that that. 
you know, the ECB's every, it's, it's a not-for-profit and every pound it makes goes into growing the women and games, girls game around the country, goes into supporting the clubs that are trying to get their head around how they maintain wickets on the back of clover change, goes into supporting the growth of, of cricket. It's one of the few games that is generally compelling to some of the ethnic minority com- communities in our in our city centres, goes into pathways for kids up and down the country, yada, yada, yada. So um, on the back of um, serious challenges to the attract if that's even a word, um, of the test game internationally and certainly the viability of the commercial broadcast rights that go with the test game um, internationally. The ECB has pockets of funding, of current funding, let alone future funding, that it needs to find ways to, to protect. And so two prop- domestic properties that drive profitability is fundamental to that. And, and the hard reality is... It's a lot more challenging to do that with a 16-team structure um, than it is with an eight where you can take a month, um, start from ground zero, try and drive both reach in terms of new broadcast contracts that overlay the current ones, um, in terms of new audiences with revenue at the same time. You know, it's extremely challenging to try and deliver reach and revenue together, and they've managed that. And the fact that they've managed that whilst creating a, a an event that's profitable in year one frankly i think is staggering um and and extremely impressive you know one of the other pockets of funding from the hundred of course goes back into the first class counties and the county game around the country and so um of course there is a trade-off there in terms of needing to take um an intense schedule of time and move around things like the one day competition move away th- around things like 20 blast into other pockets and frankly, um, I think that's been particularly challenging this year because, of course, we were still in in not full lockdown, but we we're in a more challenging situation during 20 plus. That meant that um, the proposition couldn't be as as compelling as it has been to spectators in the stadia in, in previous years. Uh, and that's why the next part of the um, the change journey. I'm sure if you speak to anyone at the England World's Cricket Board, they'll say really pleased with year two, year one, year two's got to look like um, a more differentiated proposition between the two events, both with calendar slots that work and so on. But I'm sure they would have bitten your arm off for the success that was this year in a hugely challenged cricket schedule. Yeah. And before we start talking about some of that, some of that change and and what comes next over the, the next few years, what will the ECB be looking at and what should rights holders be looking at in uh, let's say the next six months, because they've got this immediate data, TV viewing figures, ticket sales, etc. What kind of what what's the work that's going to go into setting themselves up for for year two, and and what can other rights holders learn from that as well? Over the course of the last few years, rights holders have become a lot more aware of the opportunity and, frankly, the responsibility that comes from. You know the the industry vernacular would be shoulder programming. So effectively taking the your event and then trying to grow the lifetime of it, both pre and post. And with things like the draft, for example, um, it's just one one way in which newer events that are built in that way can can create compelling content at different places during the year, as opposed to it all being in a really intense um, sort of few week period. And if you look at the way, you know, the Olympic channels, channels trying to support that for the Olympic games and so on, um, 
I think we're seeing more and more of that. And clearly that's related to not needing to be wholly reliant on broadcaster coverage and having more of your direct audience that you, that you own and can serve with that content. Um, I would suggest, and, and I'm not involved in the in two circles support of, of the ECB um, any longer, but I would imagine that the conversation over the course of the next few weeks, months, yeah, will be absolutely about how they take that sort of differentiated conversation to different levels, to different audiences, and start to stage engagement with the game um, using the hundred, but using all the other assets that the ECB have at have at play. Um, so, for example, I know they've been delighted by the way in which they can evidence attendance at 100 through to turning up at the cricket club while I'm recording this um, as young groups of children to take part in in Dynamos, for example, which is another of their new products that's launched this year, been really effective for that sort of 7, 8, 9, 10 age group looking to keep them start to get them comfortable with the hardcore game and so on so um that's the real beauty of of an organization like the ecb if you can have your kind of marquee broadcast and, and attendance products working really well for you you can push audiences very compellingly into the grassroots of the game uh sally monday actually who is uh, Chief Executive of UK Sport told me a story about for the book about um, the work that England Hockey did in terms of capturing a live audience at attendance in London 2012 and being very proactive in pushing that live audience into try hockey for the first time in the clubs after the game, after the games. And hockey was really the only sport that managed to get an experiential component to the Olympic Park. Um, and it worked brilliantly for them to the extent that they're, they're, they have waiting lists actually after London 2012 for a number of their clubs. Um, and I noticed that the ECB have been really proactive around pushing that attendance product into and, and um, viewership of the game into products like Dynamos. Um, so, for example, if you look on Sky Go now and you look up the, you kind of have a uh, potter through the highlights, the edited highlights of all the games. You can also watch a primer for Dynamo's cricket um, as part of that. You can also watch some of their trailers they've done with Lego. Um, and that's the real beauty of being someone like the ECB is responsible for everyone from, um, you know, Joe Root at the top of the game with Ben Stokes and Owen Morgan through to you know, seven or eight year old who might turn up at the cricket club uh, for the very first time. Owning that whole supply chain means they can make the 100 really effective right across it. Yeah, and not to get too into sins of the fathers, but one of the issues that people talked about in 2005, which for international listeners, England beat Australia in the ashes, and it was a huge kind of surprise success on, on free-to-air television, was that you had basically kids going to local cricket clubs who didn't have a place for them. So they just didn't have the staff. There wasn't a pipeline for this new attention uh, to be converted into a kind of lifelong interest in the game. There wasn't the supporting framework. And then, of course, the ECB had already sold the rights, lock, stock and barrel to pay TV for the following year. So you you couldn't capture that moment in time. And I suppose there's a bit more sophistication now in the strategic planning that goes around the, that that kind of opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's hugely impressive and, and really multi-channel, actually, if you think about the marketing that, that you as a ticket buyer get after a game, if you think about... Um, some of the things I mentioned on the SkyGo platform so for, for kids as well as adults around the 100. If you think about the the infrastructure they create for every child who comes down to one of their one of their experiential products at a cricket club, it's free T-shirts, free bats, 
yada 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 and they and the clubs have to um put people forward to be trained to be able to deliver those products to a, to a good quality um our cricket club happens still on a friday night and so we we kind of recommend the parents don't leave the kids at the club because that and parents are delighted because the bar's open um and they also get incidentally when they do come they also get some packets of those free packets of those cricket attacks and what that does is connect them back to the elite stars of the game that they're seeing in the hundreds right so if you look at my daughter um i don't think she could have named even though she's she's you know, strong under 11. I don't think she could have named more than three or four female cricketers uh, before the summer started, despite the fact she probably plays cricket two or three times a week. Um, and and now she could probably reel, reel off the whole Southern Brave 11 and a, a, and a fair number of the international players. And that's because the connection is not just watching it on the, on, on the TV. It's then taking people into the grassroots, the game at the clubs, and then little things like giving people free packs of stickers takes them back up to the elite game. It's been a seriously impressive marketing effort from my perspective. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how to plug that success back into the rest of the game, uh, maybe rebuild a few bridges in the process. Uh, We'll be back just after this. Hello, this is Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm trying to find out how businesses can best make their way through these extraordinary times. So together with SportsPro and with leaders from inside and outside sport, I've created the Playbook series. It's the place to go for agenda-free, pragmatic advice to navigate your organization through change. Catch up on our library of articles and podcasts and learn more about how our new labs program can help you succeed. Head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook to find out more. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Uh, Matt, we talked there in the first part about the 100 in isolation um, and the way it's overcome some of the challenges to get going in this kind of COVID era especially. But of course, the broader challenges are those to do with convincing the wider cricketing community that it's for the greater health of the game and also fitting into what is a very, very busy calendar in England and internationally. I think that's right. I think in terms of convincing people it's for the broader good of the game, um, frankly, I I think uh, even in the hardest, grumpiest of of members of our cricket club, um, demonstrating the women's game on an equal platform um and the volume of people who would turn up to that watch that and love it including um a lot of the younger girls who might have sat at the side where their brothers came to training and now want to play too i think even the most hardened cynic um noticing the way people consume the sport up and down the country would 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 now sit there and go okay you can see the good that that's brought um in terms of the broader good of the game i'm I'm sure the ecb themselves would say if there were, if they could wind the clock back to some of the communications in the early days, they, they might maybe have nuanced slightly differently. Um, it's one of those perennial challenges, I think, that um, a lot of governing bodies have is, is that they're, they are quite reticent to talk about the importance of the revenue generating efforts and the repositioning efforts that they're making in terms of the the broader good of the game. So, yeah, if you look at the the direct revenue that the ECB um, 
DCB generates. Um, for me, they could talk a lot more about the fact that, you know, of the, I think they make just over 200 million quid a year, roughly. Uh, and of that, um, I believe that the over a half goes into um, effectively helping the first class counties break even and the recreational game. Um, the rest is spent centrally. It's spent centrally on programs like the junior ones we've talked about um, earlier on and, and England team. So um, this isn't a profit generating operation. I think if, if DCB took some time to share a little bit more perhaps about the amount of debt that's in the first class county game, um, the fact that they need to generate more income in order to be able to support some of the activities up and down the country. I think people might actually sort of understand why a brand new product that's profit making from year one, um, that's driving both reach and revenue is so critical to the future of the game when test cricket, in particular internationally, into the broadcast mics for that are, are challenged. Um, so broader good of the game, I think people have recognised it, particularly through the female side and the ECB maybe could do a little bit more in terms of explaining the, the start financial context. Anyone who's interested, um, Ian Watmore, the chairman, wrote a brilliant blog on the ECB website that, that got under the skin of the ECB's finances a little bit, and it's really worth a look. Uh, in, terms of the, in terms of the calendar, it's true that it's felt a little bit disjointed at times this year as we've wrestled with COVID bubbles, several tests at, uh, at single locations, women's test opposition not being able to come over after all. The women's game, as well as the men's game, having to move competitions around pretty materially in order to make space for, for the 100 and the other tests. Um, and certainly some of the, the, the sort of second tier of major counties, if you like, um, have some beef with that. I have, to, I have to say, I think, you know, you can't put another month's worth of professional competition into a season that was already busy and expect there to be no collateral damage. And so um, formats will have to change and evolve, no doubt, to reflect the existence of the 100. Um, at the same time, understanding a bit about the ECB's financial um, opportunities as well as challenges, I have to say, I think it's going to be a compromise that's worth making. Um, and frankly, if it makes some of the, the counties up and down the country think a little bit sharper about how they how they refine their marketing proposition at a local level, I think you know perhaps a bit of competition, the friendly sense, is no bad thing either. We'll come back to some of that repositioning of, of the county game and, and perhaps the appetite for change that that might now uh, have have been stimulated a bit. But the the thing with the calendar is it's. It's not exclusive to cricket. It's different in cricket because you have the, the different formats. But we're in a world where there is a endless availability of content. If you look in the entertainment space, if you look at what a company like Disney does with all of its IP, um, but the resource that you run out of very quickly in sport is the players. We're learning that in football. We're learning that across the board, really, with, with major sports that are just trying to stuff too much in and there's too many stakeholders and no one is... Is kind of quite willing to take that step back. I think that's I think that's true. And while I would argue you can get away with slightly more, perhaps in terms of games on pitch physically from a cricket perspective, but over the course of an Adam for of a year for a single athlete, we we've seen over the course of the last year, haven't we, the the mental toll it takes. Uh, I noticed it in my kids. It's an extremely taxing mental sport to play. Um, 
I, I do think we'll see more and more um, the kind of top tier of cricketers become specialist in the sport that they in the format of the sport that they play. I don't necessarily see that as quite as bad a thing as as some other people do. You know, if you look at um, to take a really extreme example, if you look at um, swimming or you look at athletics, you look at any of the Olympic sports, um, even rugby to an extent, you know, either you play sevens or fifteens, you, you know, you do fly and front call, you sprint, you, you know, and I think we might see an extrapolation of that with cricket. There's no rule that says everybody needs to be able to do everything. And, and yeah, I think we might see sort of an increasing prevalence of stars in certain types of formats. And while there's still significant um, broadcast rights and and attention and appetite in England and Australia as well for for Test cricket, then I think that will continue in Test cricket as well. But but that's the only way I see us addressing the the multiple need for different formats and um, and ultimately looking after the players too. Yeah, because of course there's always going to be an appetite for a fan to watch a day of Test cricket and then an evening of the hundred or whatever county or franchise competition they happen to be watching you can't have the players at both of those games and you can't really have them both you know in, involved with both competitions for a serious period of time sure but I, I also think you you might get to a point in five years time where certain people say well actually I only enjoy watching test cricket and certain people say in particular younger audiences say well actually I'll take the 100 or t20 and I'll watch it with a beer in the pub that's you know I don't want to do a whole day of test cricket and and that's okay isn't it you know, it'd be exactly the same with people who sort of say, "Well, you know, I, I, I like watching sort of endurance running, but I'm but I'm not into sprints or whatever it might be." You know, so those sports that are genuinely global are also going to have to recognise that um, to look after the athletes, they have to be more differentiated in their proposition as well. This feels like something I've I've talked to people about the entire time I've written about sport, and it's feeling the the broader question or the the sorry. The narrower question, in fact, about the quality of, of Red Bull cricket in England, longer format cricket, um, and the quality of players is one that I can always remember happening and, and trying to concentrate talent and stuff like that. Is there enough thought that goes into the presentation of, of Red Bull cricket outside of a few test matches, a few test series that get very high levels of production? I don't mean that you need to have the DJs and the Razzmatazz that you have uh, involved with with T20s or with the hundred, but is there enough thought about what that experience is like, and perhaps how you could modernise that while also staying true to to the traditions and the integrity of it? I mean, one of the things just to just to preempt it, one of the things that strikes me is you have counties playing games at perhaps too many games in empty stadiums when in fact they could go to lush outgrounds and you know, create a, a more intimate experience there. I know they do that for periods of the season, but, you know, perhaps that should be a greater emphasis. Are there ways that you could concentrate the talent a bit while also retaining the role that county teams play? Perhaps they have a stake in another representative competition. Is there enough of this kind of discussion that goes on without it becoming too emotive too quickly? I think there is, there's a lot more discussion around things like that than you might realise because, of course... Um, being slightly stereotypical, those people who are at uh, the Uxbridge outground of Middlesex on a Tuesday afternoon with their picnic watching the second day of a county championship game 
are probably those who would have the biggest heart attack at you mentioning change to the the sort of traditional Red Bull structure. And and so um, I think the approach they're taking, which is iterative, careful, sensitive change, um, which has generated some results in the international game. So, you know, we had a World Test Championship final, didn't we, over here this summer, necessarily over here this summer. Um, so I think, and, and indeed, I think some of the the ways in which they're just gently innovating and doing good too. For example, the, the Ruth Strauss Foundation test that we, like, we last saw in England as well. You know, I, I think they're trying, but also respectful of the fact that if you looked at the, the sort of hardcore cricket audience, the long term, probably the most perturbed by what the 100 might represent it from their senses to, to their hardcore experience, they're going to take it slow. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, they're also, you would say, that that audience, most that those that are compelled by the county game are going to be most averse to things like you saying, well, can we concentrate talent, have slightly fewer teams and so on and so forth. And, and from a pathway perspective, in terms of junior cricketers coming up and down the country, having 16 counties where they, 18 counties rather, where they can go and um, play first class quality fixtures and also play second team fixtures in somewhere that's closer to their homes and things actually offers a really good developmental pipeline. The minute you start taking some of those away, it becomes a problem. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, and my suggestion in that regard would be it, it's, it's actually just iterative change in that audience. Um, however, things that create more eyeballs on the, on the Red Bull game, like more use of outgrounds, for example, um, like the use of festivals. Um, so the Scarborough Festival, for example, that, that does so well up north um, to create a, you know, a calendar event that happens once a year. Those kind of things, I think, probably could take a little bit more focus and attention. Let's look at what else goes into a project like this or what else goes into an ambition like this was meant to deliver. Um, which is building a new audience, which is bringing in new fans, perhaps removing some of the levels of intimidation. I don't mean, you know, I mean soft intimidation, the fact that people are coming into a new space and they, they perhaps don't fully understand it. Not every rights holder is going to go out and launch a brand new competition and spend a lot of money and have it, you know, broadcast on national television and all the other things that go with that. They're not going to have the same kind of commercial backing and incentive but there are going to be things they can do with their structures and things they can do with the way that they reach out to people that will broaden that audience that perhaps don't get as much attention what, what are some of the things that they need to be thinking about at the simplest level i just said ecb's approach in terms of its of its gender equality through the hundred has been um, both exemplary and will very soon be the, the minimum standard required of any sport. So um, if I was sat across a sport that um, couldn't look itself in the eye and think about its positioning, uh, and so, then um, I would be looking to address that extremely quickly. Um, and if you think about the upside there, um, and, and this is too simplistic because, of course, there was a compelling participation, Grace, base in, in female cricket before this but 
it is doubled now doubled the amount of valuable content that in in people's eyes that it that it has as its disposal and gone a long way to increase material increasing the size of its addressable audience by making a compelling product for, for females as well as males and so the commercial logic in terms of reach and revenue for a, a gender balanced product take aside the the social responsibility of it i think is, is being pretty compelling so that'd be first thing um second thing i think would be thinking about the way in which you can better and more easily connect your um, your professional audience, your professional players, elite athletes, call them what you will, um, to the grassroots and recognizing that doesn't require necessarily um, hugely complex digital strategies or big player rights deals. You know, so I come back to that example I gave earlier of the, the little cricket attacks cards, you know, just, just little small things that, or, or that just look to break down the relationship between the elite athletes and the and grassroots and second thing thirdly if i'm honest i think probably just taking the brave pill a little bit as well so if you look at the you look at the team at the ecb so uh, head of the women's competition beth barrett wild chief executive tom harrison for two you know these are these are individuals who grown up caring about loving the sport played club cricket grew up in that infrastructure. Um, imagine what it's been like for them for the course of the last two, three, four, five years with most of the mainstream media uh, and certainly almost all of the, the cricketing media thinking they're ruining the sport that they love. Um, and, and so you know, it's a little bit of a... Convi- of a um, and imagine, frankly, how straightforward it would have been to create the incremental change on the back of 20 Blast grow revenues and attendances by 10% using the, the trajectory they've already been on, use that to offset any decline in, in global broadcast rights or, or sponsorship rights or anything else on the back of recession and just had a quite a nice existence. And to do something for the long-term health of the game requires a lot of bravery when you're putting your career on the line. And, and so I, I think to, to sum that up, really, it's, it, uh, it's about bravery it's about trying to collate the elite game to the to the grassroots game in as material a way as you, as you possibly can, and um, at a first instance, it's thinking about gender equality as a uh, as a hygiene factor. And if all those three things are hygiene factors in the way in which you develop and market your sport, you're in a pretty good shape. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, Matt. Um, enjoy your cricket tour. I will enjoy tuning into the Test match a bit later this week. Yeah, and the cricket world moves on, but certainly a lot for people to learn from this experience as uh, as i'm sure everybody will have expected and a lot still to be learned from it i mean if you if you really sum it up you know anyone who listens to the to the playbook pods we pulled together who had one message for that sum up the message of the playbook pods in three words it would be change is hard right and change is hard in in cricket but they will absolutely reap what they've sown now because the journey they've been on is something that, that all of us are going to have to go on, whatever sports we work in and around. All right. Thanks very much, Matt. No worries. Pleasure as always. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. Ed Dixon.